Welcome into another edition of NBA Sound System. Carlin Gay alongside Micah Adams. Hope you're staying safe out there. Uh, hope you're enjoying your time off for some of you. And hope that we can at least fill a little bit of the basketball voids in your life with this episode. Micah, my man, how's it going? Carlin, man, I'm great. I'm, I'm staring out the window into the woods. There's The sun is shining. The birds are chirping. It's a beautiful day, my man. It is. It's, it's an incredible day. It's too bad that we're cooped up inside doing this right now, but hopefully we can get some uh, some sun, <laughs> some vitamin E in a little bit. Uh, this podcast is going to be another rep- retrospective podcast. Last week, we had the opportunity to go into Michael Jordan's best games, te- best 10 games of his career, uh, according to us, and... I think it was well received by the people. I think that uh, no, no, no one came at us on Twitter or anything like that. So I, I don't think anyone, like, no, nobody came as hard at me uh, as you did. So <laughs> well, we're, we're hoping. I expect that we, more. I expect more of the same today out of you, my man. Yeah, I, I, I as well. And uh, with the Jordan documentary coming up. Uh, we decided to take a look at some of the teams that Michael Jordan actually had to go through to become the legend that he is today. And in turn, looking at some of those legends who may have kind of let one slip away. So we're going into a complete deep dive of the 98 Utah Jazz. In my opinion, one of the teams that really should have had a championship uh, ring by now. That's Stockton, that's Malone. They face Mike for the second year in a row and come up empty-handed. The fact that you used the four words, let one slip away, is an all-time let them off the hook phrase because this is a team that didn't let one slip away. They straight up choked away uh, an opportunity to, to finally get that elusive ring. And really, when you dig into the details as we're about to, it's pretty damning that that they weren't able to come up here. Yeah, so so this is only, only about the 98 Jazz. Only about the 98 Jazz. But we're not going to dig into the, the 96-97 team. Uh, it's only about the 98 season and you know, the, the team that went to the uh, 98 finals. But to do that, we do have to touch base on what happened before and they're coming off a season where they lost the Chicago Bulls in six games. The season that Carl Malone wins MVP. We can argue about whether he deserved it or not. We both stay on the same side. I, I, I think anyway that Michael should have won it that year. Should have won it every year, really. But they gave it to they gave it to Carl. Yeah, it's that. I mean, w- without going through all of them right now off the top of my head, uh, that that is the most egregious. Uh, MVP uh, <laughs> atrocity, if you will. Uh, again, there's a long list of them. That one sits at the top. Of, let, let's not kid ourselves. That was Michael Jordan's league. Yeah, so so Carl Malone coming off an MVP-type season or an MVP season uh, has to lead the Utah Jazz back to the finals after losing in six games. So they go through the summer. They have a team. They know they're good enough to win. Now it's time to get back there and actually prove it. They start the season for the first 18 games without John Stockton. John Stockton does not play due to a knee injury. The first 11 games of the season, they go 5-6 and six to start off the year. And then I'm going to get my Mike Adams on and, and wonder what you would tweet if this would have happened at that time in 1998. The next six games, Carl Malone averages 26.3 points per game, 12.5 rebounds, 4.3 assists, 1.2 steals, 1.5 blocks, 
on 54% shooting from the field. The Jazz win six straight games while he's putting up those type of numbers without John Stockton. So my tweet would have been something like, uh, I'm not saying, you give up those numbers, I'm not saying that Carmelo is better than Michael Jordan, but I'm also not not saying that Carmelo is better than Michael Jordan. You probably would have well, said something like that at that time, right? Well, I, no, probably. And I and I think that look that that 97 MVP vote is you know it, it's a travesty. It shouldn't have happened. And I think sometimes Malone becomes a little bit of a punching bag uh, because of, of some of the the, the postseason uh, you know flops and whatnot. But it is worth pointing out, my man. Just had a decade-long run of first-team All-NBA nods that really the likes of which have only been have been done by LeBron James and Magic Johnson. That's it. So, I mean, Carl Malone, really, for, for the better part of 11 years, is one of the five best players in the league. And so, like, yeah, maybe he shouldn't have won the MVP over Michael Jordan, but I think there's zero question at all uh, that he certainly had the ability to rise to that level, even if only for a couple of games at a time. And, and those six games, a perfect example of just like how good Carl Malone was, because I, I think that we, we kind of sometimes lose sight of just how dominant he was uh, because he didn't win a ring, you know? And we always talk about how good he was as a as a scorer. I mean, second all-time in terms of points uh, scored, and he's, he's going to get passed eventually maybe by LeBron James. But right now, as we record, he's second all-time only behind the great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And he made four all defensive teams in his career. Like no one, no one really thinks about Carl Malone being a lockdown defender, but he was on uh, all defense four times in his career. Yeah, including three straight years there at the end in 97, 98, and 99. So like the two years he won MVP in 97 and 99, he was also first team all defense those years and and was also first team in 98 uh, this season that we're talking about, in which he finished second in MVP. So it's not even like Malone was this great defender late or uh, you know early on in his career. It was really late in, in this exact era that we're talking about where Malone really took off defensively. Yeah, so we bring all that up to say that Carl Malone is not washed at this point in his career. He's actually exactly in his prime. Like, this is the best version of Carl Malone in this 98 season. He's doing this without John Stockton, who, by the way, comes back from the injury. Uh, without without Stockton in the lineup, the Jazz actually go 11-7. and seven. They float. They stay above water. Stockton comes back into the fold. They finish the year first place in the entire league, 62-20 and 20 on the season. Uh, they actually have the best record via tiebreaker because they beat the Chicago Bulls twice. They sweep the season series. None of those games, by the way, and they played, remember, they played the year before on Christmas, or, uh, on, in the finals. They did not play on Christmas Day. None of those games were on Christmas Day, which is weird to think about at this, this time in, you know, in this era. I don't think that the the uh, the programming was was quite up to snuff uh, then as as it is now because there's zero doubt in my mind that that's a Christmas Day game, right? Yeah, I mean, Certain, yeah, certainly a nine, certainly a ninety in the ninety seven ninety eight season. I'll tell you what um, was on yeah. Christmas Day. However, it was <laughs> the uh, the Rockets were actually playing the Jazz. The Jazz hosted the Rockets. It was a double hitter. Jazz hosted the Rockets and the Miami Heat. Hosted or were in Chicago to play the Bulls, and the way they promoted it was the four best teams from a year ago playing on Christmas Day. So they didn't have the champions or the finalist play; they had the conference finalist play. 
I don't hate that. And yeah. and look, I, I'm glad that you brought up all the records because I think that sometimes there's this lingering feeling. And I, I know I had it, right? This is, I, I'm in elementary school during these. This is like right in my Bulls fandom uh, heyday. And I think that there was this feeling of inevitability that the Bulls were always going to win the title. So not only did Utah go 62 and 20, both the Lakers and Sonics also won 61 games. And actually, when you look at it going backwards, when you look at it in terms of, you know, sorting the, the teams by overall scoring margin and net rating, it actually went Lakers, Sonics, and then Bulls and Jazz. So I think sometimes we just lose sight of how good the league was uh, in and around that time. And that's without getting into the Indiana Pacers and the Miami Heat. And, and, and of course, uh, you know, the, the Knicks are still good. So it's a really, really strong league uh, as this is all unfolding. It's kind of similar to what we see right now in, in terms of there are probably five or six teams that you can make a legitimate uh, argument for to, you know, if the path evens out or if they get the correct path, that they could end up in the finals and, and potentially win a championship. And then there's five or six teams that really shouldn't be in the NBA. They should probably be playing in the G League. <laughs> so I'm going to give you some nuggets at the end of the, the, the program about what happened in that season. And you, 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 you'll, you'll, fig- you'll figure out what I'm trying to say about that. But as you said, a couple teams, you know, went close to 60 games, which is insane to think about how good the league was back then at that time. Uh, and Chicago and the Utah Jazz were definitely one of them. So the Jazz uh, actually beat the Bulls twice. They sweep the season series. Carl Malone goes for 30 in both of those games, flexing the muscle a little bit, setting the tone, setting the tempo. We may see you down the line. We're sending a message and we're sending it early. We're not afraid. We're putting, you know, the six game loss behind us. And look, I, I was I was just I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, those two regular season meetings. I think that there's there's this everyone immediately thinks of the '97 and '98 finals when you think Jordan and Malone. Uh, those two guys for their careers played against each other 20 times, in which uh, Jordan was with the Bulls. Let's just forget forget the Wizards for a moment. Uh, it's an even split, 10-10, right down the middle. So two really hotly contested final series that could have gone either way. Uh, and then an exact 50-50 split head-to-head in the regular season. I, I, people have this idea that like Michael Jordan just owned Carl Malone. And like, yeah, maybe he came out on top in the two biggest moments. But but again, kind of like what we were hinting at with, with Malone's place in the game with those 11 straight first-team All-NBA nods and, and you know one MVP over Jordan and all that. Like he was right there, Carlin. Like Carl Malone was right there, maybe one half step. Uh, beneath Jordan, that's that's just how good he truly was. Yeah, there was a legit argument that Karl Malone was the best player in the league at that time. Like that's that's what we're trying to get at here, folks. There was a legitimate argument in Jordan's prime, in his peak, uh, that Karl Malone was you know as good or better than Michael Jordan, which is insane to think about now. But at the time, it really, really, and truly wasn't. Uh, let's get to the playoffs uh, and and the Jazz path to the playoff because. They're coming off a season where they go 60, 62 and 20. Uh, everyone's healthy at this point, and they run into a little bit of a roadblock. Expectations are high. They're the number one seed in the Western Conference. They went to the finals a season ago. Everyone's expecting them to get back there, and they run into a team in the Houston Rockets who finished eighth but have a lot of veteran leadership on that team and, and guys that just don't want to say no. Hakeem Olajuwon, Charles Barkley, Clyde Drexler in his final season. Rudy Tom Jonovich, who knows how to motivate a championship roster. And all of a sudden, 
The Utah Jazz are down 2-1 in a best-of-five series playing back-to-back elimination games. That's crazy to think about. It could have all ended really quickly. And it's it's kind of crazy, too. Uh, you know, when we think about Utah, specifically as it relates to never being able to get over the hump, uh, mostly against the Bulls, like winning those two back-to-back games against a team like Houston. Yeah, they were an eight seed, but like that's a team that had won two championships, was certainly capable uh, as they they proved taking a lead over them. The fact that Utah was able to get off the mat, not once, but not twice. And they really, those games four and five in that series were not close. Like Utah came out from the jump, punched them in the mouth and started playing like the 62 win juggernaut that they were. That was a really impressive showing with their backs against the wall which makes what happens in the NBA Finals later kind of just even crazier because like we've seen like they have the capability of rising to the occasion they just couldn't do it against the Bulls. As as you know when any sort of uh, championship run you do have to have a little bit of luck and just for the sake of the Rockets fans listening out there I do have to point out that Yes, they were up 2-1 in the series. Houston Rockets, of course, were up 2-1 in the series. Karl Malone, we just talked about how great he was and one of the great players in, uh, in NBA history. And at this time, one of the best players in the game. 29-13 and 13 in Game 4 to force the Game 5. Charles Barkley in that Game 4 actually got hurt. And at this time, we're obviously not talking about prime Charles Barkley. It is a little bit of wash Charles Barkley. He's actually coming off the bench at this point in his career in Houston. Uh, but he's still playing like significant minutes here. He's still playing close to 15 to 16 minutes per game. He does not play game five, and they won't have him for the rest of the uh, playoffs if they were to advance. So Othella Harrington plays 14 game, fourteen minutes in that game five. They go from having Charles Barkley, Hall of Famer, to Othella Harrington, who was just in his second year. And but he actually played nice, but he's not Charles Barkley. Like He had 10 points, yeah. but he's not Charles Barkley. If you wanted 98 NBA basketball, you're getting 98 NBA basketball on this podcast, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they, they finally get past... Uh, the Houston Rockets, who, by the way, at that point in the in uh, at that point heading into Game Five, they had never lost a series when they won Game One. They were seventeen and zero in all playoff series when they won Game One. That was their first ever series loss after winning a Game One, uh, and it comes at the hand of the Utah Jazz. And Rudy T's Rockets were eleven and three in in elimination games uh, ahead of that one. So. There was a lot. There was a lot going on there. The Utah Jazz were able to make it out, and then they sort of flipped the switch and started cruise on their way through uh, to the playoffs. They go ahead and they were able to beat the San Antonio Spurs in five. They sweep the Lakers, and I want to spend a little bit of time on this Laker team because this is an interesting time in the Lakers unit, and we should probably do a whole pod deep dive on this entire Lakers series uh, season as well. As you mentioned, this, this is team. like a great. This is like a great forgotten Lakers team. This 97-98 team, it really is. is. Yeah, sixty-one wins. Uh, Fisher's there. Horry's there. Fox is there. Kobe's there. Uh, Van Exel's there. Eddie Jones is there, and of course Shaq's there. Um, and they beat the Jazz three-one in the regular season series. Uh, so they had they had momentum going in. They had just beat the Sonics, who, by the way, we need to do another podcast on them because they had chances to win championships. This is, of course, the first or second year without Sean Kemp. They have Vin Baker replacing Sean Kemp, so it's not the team that went to the finals, but still a very good team, and the Lakers made them look like dog food. They destroyed them. So now it's head-on-head, Jazz, Lakers, and if you ever want to see what experience means in the playoffs, just go back and watch this series. It's a four-game sweep, 
And you can clearly see the more experienced team was just focused. They were there and they punched the Lakers in the mouth a thousand times and they just left the series with a bloody lip. I mean, that, that's the series where, where Kobe shoots the three air balls. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine that ever happening. That's, uh, you know, that, that goes down as sort of one of the growing pains and learning moments. I, I just, you know, we talked a little bit about before about how there was this feeling of inevitability with the Bulls. And I just like, I want to point out some, some numbers here on just how dominant Utah was in that series. So they win game one by 35. They only won game two by four, but they but they led for the final nine minutes. The game is never really close over the final eight minutes. They win game three by 11. They win game four uh, by four. But again, they led by 10. Uh, they led by double digits most of the fourth quarter. If you look at that point in time at every single Western Conference Finals ever, that was the third most dominant Conference Finals performance ever by any team in that conference and the most dominant in over 25 years. That's incredible. So the Jazz, the Jazz had just destroyed this great Lakers team and were, were absolutely rolling. They had nine days of rest between Game 4 of the Conference Finals and Game 1 of the NBA Finals. They had nine days off, whereas the Bulls just had two days off. They, they go to seven games against the Pacers in a crazy drag-out uh, street fight, basically. So the Jazz are rolling. They're fresh. They're healthy. There's under no circumstances. Uh, I mean, Utah, they, they, just, they were dealt a hand that they, they just should have won. 100%. Uh, you mentioned the Lakers going to that seven-game series against the Indiana Pacers. They beat the Hornets before that, and they swept the Nets. They really weren't touched until that series against the Indiana Pacers. They get there. It's a street fight. And by the way, this time around, last year they had home court advantage. This time around, they go to Utah to start the series where Utah is incredible at home. This uh, in in this '98 season, uh, I think they only lost five games total at home. They were 36 and five at the Delta Center, one of the toughest places to play in the NBA. Uh, and the Jazz had won four straight at home at this point. They were rolling like they. This was a, t- a series where people were saying, "Oh my, the, the Bulls are on." You know their third straight finals run. They may run out of gas here. Michael's 35 years old. He's playing a lot of minutes. Scotty's breaking down at this point in his career. Uh, Dennis is doing Dennis things off the court. How is Phil going to keep them together? And the Jazz, on the other hand, they just lost. They have all the motivation in the world to try and finally get that ring. They're they're Stockton and Malone. They're placing histories on the line. Like it, many people were picking the Utah Jazz to win this series. Uh. Yeah, and I mean they 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 come out, they win game one in overtime, but not first before blowing a seven point lead in the final four minutes <laughs> and a four point lead in the final minutes. So they they win game one, but even in that win, they sh- they start to show some signs and some foreshadowing. It's like a oh my god, here we go again. It's the '97 Finals all over again when they had all these chances to close them out in the fourth quarter, couldn't do it. They actually do in game one. So, you know, they're able to weather the storm. And then game two, Carlin, game two is if you're going to circle one game and and say, here's where it all went wrong for Utah. And here's where you kind of the entirety of the Stockton Malone era jazz boils down to the fourth quarter of game two. Because it is an absolute and utter collapse. Before you get to the game two, I just want to give give you two quick stats of of, of game one. So game one, they win the game. Uh, it goes to overtime. 
And the second time, only the second time in Michael Jordan's career, he's he's facing a deficit after uh, in a in a final series. He lost, of course, his first final series game, his first finals game ever to Magic and the Lakers. And this, which would end up being his final final series, he loses game one again. And that's the first time since then that he had been down in a final series. So, and and John Stockton had his best game easily of the finals. Thus far, Carmelo no shows, not showing up. Can't. I mean, guard, uh, Rodman's doing a phenomenal job in game one guarding him. Stockton hits the game-winning shot. He goes nine to twelve from the field, twenty-four points, eight assists. Big time game out of John Stockton. We hadn't talked about John Stockton to this point. We were, we were raving about how great Carl Malone is, but at this point, John Stockton is in year I think fifteen of his career. He's already the all-time assist leader, already the all-time steals leader. One of the best players in NBA history. He's, 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 he's on his way to the Hall of Fame, but he's missing the ring. And he finally shows up in a, in a chance. He knows that this could be his last chance. Shows up in game one. Uh, I, I think as, as you'll see, uh, John Stockton, I, you know, in, in my personal opinion, you start going through these games in 97, 98. And, and Stockton, for the most part, he's showing up uh, and showing out in these big moments. Now, Game two is a, li- a little bit of a different situation as we're about to dive into, but you're absolutely right. I think Stockton some sometimes gets a little bit lost uh, just for how much of a killer he is, right? Like I think I think there was the uh, I forget what podcast it is, but it- it's all these all these current and old players talking about the the first time that someone really got him, and Allen Iverson is just raving about how the first time he goes and plays John Stockton, Stockton just kills him absolutely torches him left and right. So I think sometimes, you know, you, you, you think of the pick and rolls and all the assists and the short shorts and you think, oh, John Stockton's this this clean cut, just nice kind of guy. No, John Stockton was an absolute assassin. Yeah, he was a, he was a flat out killer. Uh, one of the most competitive players in NBA history. Uh, this is where we start to see the cracks in the armor. This is where we start to see the cracks in the armor. You were going to get to game two and how it kind of unravel for Utah. So they're up game, they're up one nothing. They're at home. They have now three straight wins over the Chicago Bulls. The monkeys sort of falling off their back and then it shows up again. And note they had an opportunity here to go up 2-0, which no team had done against the Bulls in the finals. Uh now going going up 2-0 against the Bulls is not uh you're you're not guaranteed of anything against Michael Jordan. I right the Knicks went up 2-0 uh, against Jordan in 93 and you know he ended up coming back so it's not like hey up 2-0 the series is over but man up 2-0 you're feeling great they led by three entering the fourth quarter okay let's just skip right to the fourth quarter they led by three entering the fourth quarter right 12 minutes away from being up from being up 2-0 Carlin I'm gonna ask you how many minutes how long into the fourth quarter do you think it took before Utah finally made its first basket Boy, uh, I'm going to say four minutes into the fourth. Six minutes and 59 Jeez. seconds. Jeez. At home. At home, At by home. the way. Wow. With a lead against Michael Jordan in the finals, the chance to go up 2-0, they go the first seven minutes without a made basket. One point on nine possessions. This is a team that in the regular season had the number one offense in the NBA, the fourth best fourth quarter offense in the in the NBA. Here's what they did to start this fourth quarter with, with essentially uh, a championship there for the taking. Turnover, missed shot, offensive rebound, and a missed shot off that. 
a turnover, a missed three, two missed layups and a shot clock violation. A Carl Malone, he gets fouled, goes, makes one or two free throws. That's their only points in the first seven minutes. Another turnover, another offensive foul by Carl Malone, another missed shot, and finally, Brian Russell hits a three, at which point they're still only down by four. And oh, by the way, they would come back to take the lead again in that fourth quarter. You cannot go seven minutes without making a shot with a lead in the fourth quarter against Michael Jordan and expect to do anything but come out with an L. Sometimes it comes down to who wants it the most. And in that game, there is a play where Steve Kerr, who was awful shooting from the field, like in, in that uh, in that final series, misses his shot, gets his own miss, and is able to dish it off to Mike underneath the basket. And he hits a big layup to put them up and, and sort of seal the deal in that game. That ties the series up at one. There was only one day rest between that game. That happened on the 3rd of, J- of June. Game was Game two was on the 5th. We're talking about how how grueling of a series it was against Indiana, how nine days rest. They didn't have to fly. Utah Jazz were sitting and sleeping in their own beds. Uh, And now it starts to get a little shaky because they head to Chicago where the Bulls have now tied the series up, have stolen momentum, and entering game three in the playoffs at the United Center, which is only three years old at this point, 28-2. The Chicago Bulls. Tough place to win. On their home floor. (laughs) 28-2. So game three, it gets ugly. You're being nice. Ugly, ugly is the nicest possible word you could use there for game three. Uh, a 42-point blowout win. The Jazz scored 54 points. That is the lowest amount of points in NBA history, regular season or playoffs at that point. That's, in, that's in 54 points. James Harden does that in the game by himself nowadays. The, 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 one of the crazy things, so I mean, that's a game that will live on in infamy, right? With, with that, that's another sort of game where people point to as sort of like, ha ha, see, this is what the Jazz do in big games. And I think that, you know, it's easy now in retrospect to go back and say, you know what? That was the moment that everyone knew the Bulls could, we're going to win it all and we're going to cruise. And yet, and yet, even after that 42-point demolition, Utah, in Game 4, they're right there. They're leading in the fourth quarter again. They... They are, they are able to get off the mat, and, and I, you know, I don't want to get too, too far ahead of ourselves here, but I think you know, coming off of that game three, you would have just expected Utah to roll over and be done. Uh, instead, they, I mean, they were right there. They were right there with a chance in game four, the very next game at that United Center where the Bulls were 28-2 and two, and now 29-2 with an opportunity to get right back in it, they were, and they just couldn't do it. There was there had been history, a little bit of history for the Jazz to kind of dig into heading into Game Four. Like there's been blowouts in the finals in the past where teams have not only come back the next game and won, but ended up winning the series. You have to go back to 1984. The Celtics get blown out in Game Three of that final series by 33 points by the Lakers in, at the Forum. The very next game, that's of course the clothesline game. Uh, the Celtics win that game in overtime and end up winning the '84 Finals after being blown out by 33 points. The very next year, the Celtics win game one of the finals by 34 points. The Lakers win game two and eventually the series in the 1985 finals. So, you know, there, there's been, there had been history where a team gets blown out and not only comes back and wins the next game, but ends up winning the series. That's what the Jazz kind of had to dig into. And at this point, 
they also had the fact that Carl Malone stunk. Like he hadn't been playing good basketball up until that point in the series. And here we go. Game four, they have a chance to tie it up. You could put the blow up behind them. Um, I mean, take what do you take away the most from that game four? The fact that they had the lead and, and dropped the ball. Is this the, is this the, is this the series in, it, in itself? Is this the game that, had they won that, maybe they're champions? I, I, I still think it's game two, but game four, I mean, it's kind of the, it's kind of the exact same thing, right? So they, uh, they go up. They take the lead with five minutes left in the fourth quarter. And the Bulls, in that game, they're asking for Utah to take this. So Michael Jordan goes four of eight from the field in the fourth quarter. Every other player on the Bulls not named Michael Jordan uh, combines to go 0 for 5 in the fourth quarter. The big difference, the free throws. The Bulls live at the free throw line in that game. But in the last possession of the game, there's, there's two opportunities. Utah on one possession with a chance to cut it to two, they miss two straight layups. Two straight layups, okay? Uh, on the possession before that, they, they, they're only down one. Right, so all they need is a, they need a stop. They force Michael Jordan into a missed shot, but instead of getting the rebound, Carl Malone commits a foul on Dennis Rodman, loose ball foul. Rodman goes sinks both free throws, and, and Chicago ultimately ends up winning. Uh, and you know we talked about how earlier in that game two, Utah falls falls apart in the fourth quarter, uh, and they shot four fifteen in the fourth quarter of, of that game two. Well, the Bulls weren't good either. Just like they were asking them to take it in game four, the Bulls went just seven of twenty in the fourth quarter of game two as well. So that's in a span of three games. That's twice that Chicago was basically gift wrapping a W on a silver platter for Utah to take it, and they just couldn't do it. They Every, just couldn't do it. Yeah, they couldn't do it. Everyone was talking about tired legs. And if you have a chance to go back and look at the, the shooting percent, not just the shooting percentages for Mike, his points and his shot attempts. Like they're almost, they're like Allen Iverson-esque. They're, we're talking about 30 plus shots for 30 points. It's not Mike, uh, you know, getting it at, uh, you know, efficiently like we, we come to know and love at that point. He, he's having to work for his shots. On the flip side of things, the Utah Jazz uh, their pick and roll, their bread and butter, heading into that game four. This is the stats that, that they had uh, off the pick and roll alone in the first three games. Game one, they score 35 points off the pick and roll. Game two, they score 20 points off the pick and roll. Game three, just eight points off the pick wow. and roll. The, the Bulls decide to lock in, and the change in the series was Scottie Pippen, who had, I think he had less than 10 points in the, in the blowout, in the in the 42-point blowout, but he was incredible defensively. And if you want to see why Scotty was so important to, you know, the championship runs was what he did defensively in that game three blowout. Uh, so 40% of the offense came from the pick and roll for the Utah Jazz in game one. Just 23% of the offense came uh, from pick and roll in that game two loss. And in game three, 15% of the offense. So we're starting to see the Bulls kind of hone in and take things away from the Utah Jazz, and they had to figure out another way to get it done. Q game five, Q Carl Malone, who hadn't at this point had a signature moment, and the pick and roll is no longer there. He has to figure out a way to score points, so he does in game five, and 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 that sort of changes not just the series, but I think also his legacy and how we look at him. Because had he not gone down swinging, maybe we're having a different conversation about Carl. Yeah, that's a big game, and and it's one two where I mean that that's another tight one. It's like I think what is it eighty three eighty one, and and the Jazz have to have to win and survive a, a Jordan 
Jordan misses a three at the buzzer on a sideline out of bounds. And in what could have been, you know, everyone talks about the, uh, the game six shot without realizing that Jordan ha- had a similar opportunity to, 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 to do the exact same thing in front of his own crowd in game five. Um, I, I'm with you. I, I think that game, that game five is important for Carl Malone in the grand scheme of things. Dennis Rodman also did an incredible job of defending Carl Malone prior to that game. And for whatever reason, uh, you know, Phil Jackson makes the, the decision to have Luke Longley guard Carl Malone for large stretches of that game. Heading into that game against the defense of Luke Longley, Carl Malone was shooting 54%. Against Dennis Rodman, just 32%. Luke Longley guards him for the majority of game five. Carl Malone has his best game of that final series. Goes for 39 points, nine rebounds. And as Micah said, was able to hold off the Chicago Bulls just by two points. Uh, and, and, and it was finally Carl Malone showing up in the fourth quarter. Uh, here's some fourth quarter stats. I know you love this. The choking away. This is going to be, in my opinion, this is where the series went. This is Stockton and Malone's numbers. In game one in the fourth quarter and overtime, they score 17 of the Jazz's 21 points. They win the game. Game two, they score one point of the Jazz's 15 in the fourth quarter. They lose the game. Game four, and that, that came off that Carmelone free throw, so it wasn't even a bucket. Game four, they score four of the 25 points that the Jazz put up in the fourth quarter. They lose that game, and they finally show up in game five, and they are able to force a game six. We go back to the Delta Center. We go back to Utah, where they're tough to beat. And that's, and that, and that's really the first time in that series in game five where you see Carl Malone get the, get the upper hand over Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was just one of seven in the fourth quarter of that game. Scottie Pippen was 0 for 3. I think, look, we, we talk a lot about the, the volume of scoring for Michael Jordan and what he did in carrying that Bulls team, especially that third straight, that, that sixth and final championship. For the series, Michael Jordan shot just 37% from the floor in the fourth quarter. Scottie Pippen only shot 30% from the floor in the fourth quarter. So again, those two guys, you talked about the, t- the tired legs and how like this really was uh, the Bulls just fighting and scrapping on their last legs. It was, it was just, it was there for the taking. And then we finally see Michael become Michael. Uh, the closeout game, he's never played a game seven in the NBA Finals. It wasn't going to happen in 1998. Heads to the Delta Center and shuts it down in what would be his final game in a Bulls uniform and what would be the last time John Stockton had a chance at winning an NBA championship. That was as close as he would get. That was close as as, as Jerry Sloan would get. Uh, that legacy, they, I mean, Jerry Sloan, one of the longest tenure coaches in, in, in North American sport, had been there through it all, had built this Stockton and Malone team, had had them playing a different style of basketball that I don't think people realize we're seeing a lot of today. Uh, that's carried over. I know everyone talks about the triangle and how important that was in the legacy of Michael Jordan. No, nothing more important than the pick and roll for Stockton and Malone and Jerry Sloan kind of creating that offense around those two guys. And it, it ends, essentially ends. Their run ends here and now in game six in the iconic shot. Of course, Michael pushing off on, on, on Byron Russell, getting the jumper. But the, I, want, I want to highlight the play before that. The steal on the other end of the floor is incredible. I, I think it really that's, is. I think yeah. that's up there with LeBron's block on, on Iguodala in the finals. I, I I don't 
if you when you freeze frame it to just watch the recognition that Jordan has of where every player is on the base, uh, you know, when he's cutting across the baseline and then, you know, Malone catches that entry pass, he immediately sneaks back in. He's only he's only making that uh, that play because of the awareness that he has of just where the help is, right? He knows even on that play, you go back and you watch it. If Malone even makes that pass uh, to Jordan's man who's cutting to, to, to the opposite corner, Jordan only makes that because he sees all the help, all the rotations are there. Right, he doesn't. He doesn't make that gamble if he doesn't have the awareness to, that that he's even in a position to do it. And that that kind of goes, you know, uh, who should get a lot of credit for that as well. Not only just the team defense, but Phil Jackson as well uh, des- deler- deserves a lot of credit. Uh, quite frankly, for for just putting a team on the floor with with the IQ to allow for Jordan and Pippen to really use those instincts in those big moments. When you look back on that fourth quarter. Uh, in that game, was this a game again that the Jazz kind of threw away? What, what, did, what did the numbers yeah. say when, when you look at they the, do. the fourth? So they they led by five entering the fourth quarter. Carl Malone makes a shot with two thirty four left, and that puts him up by four again. It's it's another game where yeah, like Michael Jordan had. I think he scores forty five. It's it's what we talked about previously. We think it's it's the best game of his career. Because of kind of the last basically 35 seconds, let's not forget too, you know, before even before the steal, Jordan gets the quick two for one uh, when he scores to cut it to one in the first place. So really, it's like the last three possessions of the game. Michael Jordan just just completely dominates. But in the fourth quarter of that game, the Utah Jazz turn it over five times. The Bulls zero, and that that, that was a a theme throughout the entire series. In in the four losses. Uh, that Utah had in the fourth quarter, uh, they had 21 turnovers against just 19 assists. You can't do that over the course of a series. And they they turned it over. They had more turnovers than made baskets in the fourth quarter uh, of this game six. Wow. Uh, so all in all, uh, the Jazz, again, for the second straight year, lose this time. They have everything going for them. They have health. They have home court advantage. Same result. They lose 4-2 to Michael Jordan and the Bulls, who, by the way, had so much controversy going around that team. Rodman, uh, Pippen, uh, Woodfield Jackson come back. Was this Jordan's last game? There were so much issues around that team. The fact that they were able to kind of withstand and withhold and hold on is the reason why we have them so highly regarded in NBA history. But this Jazz team, I mean, if it wasn't for a couple of plays, we don't get the documentary coming out in two weeks on the Chicago Bulls, do we? No, I, I, I don't. I don't think so at all. Or the documentary is about how the, maybe the documentary is about the, the '98 Jazz, the one <laughs> team that we're actually able to beat them with. With apologies to uh, to the '95 uh, Shaq. Who uh, who took out Jordan Rock in the forty five? Yeah, I mean that wasn't that wasn't the same. I mean, and, it's not the same. Thing, no, though. it's not the yeah. same. And and they got blown out in the finals. Like they weren't even on the same floor with the Houston Rockets. But I think we should still do a deep dive on that team because they were fun. Um, what are some of the lasting impressions you have of this ninety eight Utah Jazz team? And, and going back and looking at some of these games, what really stuck out to you uh, that you know the general public might not know about? We've talked about uh, we've talked about the fourth quarters, and I think that that really is just kind of the. The theme of of what happened uh, throughout the series, you know, John, we I you know we, we were given credit for John Stockton earlier, and he had a, he had a magnificent game one in the fourth quarter of this series. He shot just three of twelve from the floor, and he had twice as many turnovers as made buckets. 
We talked about Carl Malone every once in a while being able to to step up and answer the call with MJ. Uh, Jordan scores over twice as many points in the fourth quarter as Carl Malone does uh, in the fourth quarter of this series. So I think though you, you look at those two specific points, and then I think even further than that, you zoom out big picture, and I think it's it's really easy to just forget how good Utah was. And it's it's very rare for teams to, to win 60 games and back-to-back seasons and, not, and really not have anything to show for it. So I actually I, I went through and I looked at every team in NBA history that won 60 games in back-to-back years, as Utah did. They they win 64 in the 96-97 season, and then, as we talked about, they go 62-20 and 20 here. So there are only four teams in NBA history that won back-to-back in 60, in, that won 60 games in back-to-back seasons and did not win a title, okay? So the 06 and 07 Mavericks did it, but then they won a title four years later. The 29-2010 Cavs did it, but then LeBron came back and they won a title six years later. The 16-17 Spurs did it, but they had already won five. And then the second year is, of course, when Kawhi gets hurt, when they're beating the crap out of the Warriors in game one. So you almost can't even count that. So really, when you look at it in totality, and then every other team to ever do it, all one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, the 10 other teams that have done it, won at least one title in doing that. So when you look at it, really, from top to bottom, the Utah Jazz are the only team in NBA history to win 60 games or more in back-to-back seasons and not have anything to show for it in terms of uh, rings. Wow. That's uh, that's pretty pretty damning in terms of their, their legacy. But I think... It's, I mean, it's important to understand that they were going up against the all-time greatest. Uh, had it been they anyone they else, were. they would be champions. Like, I, I really and truly believe that. Not only just because of the Bulls, like the, the way they played the Bulls, they had to go through some tough teams. We talked about it off the top. The Suns, I mean, the Sonics were great. Uh, the Lakers were starting to get better. A lot of teams in the Western Conference and, and playing that style of, ba- style of basketball where it was faster, paced, and how Malone and Stockton were up up there in age at that point, uh, the fact that they were able to keep up and not only just keep up but push the pace uh, is incredible. The one stat that, that stuck out to me, we said game two was the one that really changed the series, and I think I agree with you. That is the game that they had to have uh, because they were such a dominant home team that when they lost that one game at home, and remember, folks, this is 2-3-2 format where you know two games at home and they're on three straight on the road at the United Center where no one wins. The fact that they lose that game too changes everything because they were such a different team at home than they were on the road. Everyone talks about the pick and roll, Stockton Malone, how great it was. But this team also got out and ran. Uh, you know, Stockton doesn't have as many assists if he's not throwing the ball ahead to guys like Malone uh, and, and you know some of the bigs that they had. Greg Foster was, I mean, no one's going to argue and say that this guy should be remembered in NBA history, but he was pretty agile. He was a pretty agile big. Austin Carr at that point in his career was a standstill jump shooter, but he was still going to get out and run and force the Bulls to get back in transition. When the, when the Jazz were playing great basketball, they were getting out and running the floor. Here's one stat for you, Micah. The Jazz were top 10 in fast break points per game at home. On the road, they slide all the way down to 25th. In the, Look in at the you. Day. Wow. We 
That is a huge dropout. Who are you? Who are you paying in those desperate <laughs> times to look up all these stats for you? This is incredible. That is a huge drop off, and that is the difference. That was the difference between them winning a championship and them not. They couldn't get easy buckets in Chicago to save their lives, especially in the fourth quarter. That's why some of the jumpers dried up against good defensive teams like the Chicago Bulls, and they couldn't find those easy baskets to get the Hornets of the world going and everyone else. So. I mean, it, when you combine, I think they lost by like less than 10 points combined in the three games other than the blowout game that they lost, right? Something like that? Yeah, yeah. 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 In, insane. Um, is, was there another stat that stuck out to you while you were, were you looking back that maybe people should know? And if not, um, what should be the, uh, the lasting legacy well, of, of Stockton and Malone? Yeah, no, I, I think we look that for for me, it's just uh, the, within the series itself, it's about the fourth quarter and then stepping out long term. It's just about the legacy of the jazz. And and I, I think that one element of Stockton and Malone, look, the, the we could talk about the pick and roll ad nauseum, which, of, you know, I, I don't know if there's another duo in the history of the league. Uh, there are certainly better duos, right? Like Jordan and Pippen are better. Kobe and Shaq are better. Bird and McHale and... The, the list goes on and on. Magic and Kareem, Russell and Koozie, you know, they, they might be like a borderline top 10 duo ever. But to me, what sticks out is there's not another tandem that has any one thing that they do that they're as known for as Stockton and Malone. And then when you look at sort of how the NBA evolves over the next 10 years after they're gone, it becomes a league that's entirely predicated uh, on pick and rolls. So in a way, you know, we always talk about how like the seven seconds or less sons with Mike D'Antoni and Steve Nash are, are so far ahead of the curve. Well, really the precursor of that team are these jazz teams, which like you said, they liked to run. They played a lot of pick and roll, right? So I think that really this Utah team specifically with Stockton and Malone should probably get a little bit more credit for sort of they they were kind of this modern breed of basketball before anyone even knew that it was coming. The one thing that does stick out to me about the pick and roll specifically, I think about two guys, two two duos, modern day duos that probably should have went deeper and had deeper runs in the playoffs. If they were able to transition the game, their game, the way that Karl Malone was able to when his athleticism kind of went away. I mean, if you go back and look at highlight tapes of Karl Malone in the early 90s, like this dude dunking on guys, he he was nasty. He was a high flyer. Like he was getting up down the floor. But as he got to peak, the peak of his career and was playing the best basketball of his career, that that mid-range jump shot was, I mean, it was wet. Like he, he couldn't miss that. And you had to defend that. I think about Amari Stoudemire and Steve Nash, and I wonder if Amari had found a more consistent jumper in Phoenix the way that he did when he went to uh, the Knicks. Like when he was on, with with New York, he found different ways to score outside of the pick and roll, and it made him even more deadly when when they did use the pick and roll. I wonder if he was able to add those tools while he was younger, while he still had the athleticism. How nasty that Phoenix Suns team would be. And I also think about Chris Paul and Blake Griffin for the same reason. By the time Blake Griffin figured out that he would have to, you know, find some sort of long range game to himself and we saw him become a great playmaker, it was a little too late. And and the rest of the league got already caught up to them. And I, I just wonder what the Clippers would look like and what Chris Paul's resume might look like had Blake Griffin figured out to face up game a little bit earlier. I'm I'm glad you said I'm glad you said Blake Griffin because as you were as you were talking Mario Stoudemire, the first one that immediately came to mind was Blake Griffin. Because if 
if the Clippers version of Blake or if the uh, the Pistons version of Blake Griffin in terms of skill with with outside shooting and some of the facilitating if that was the version that was that was there with with Chris Paul with JJ Redick and with DeAndre Jordan there's no doubt in my mind that the Clippers are winning a title right like that the the overall version of Blake Griffin uh, would have would have resulted in some chips and, and the next guy that I think about kind of when I think about Carl Malone Imagine if Zion Williamson ever gets a Carl Malone esque seventeen footer. Yeah. It's done. It's yeah. just over. Yeah, yeah. It, Zion would be the next one. Him and him and Lonzo really should really should go back while they have time to watch how Stockton Malone were able to figure it out because they have the pieces around them to to, to make it happen. The one thing that the Jazz were missing was a third consistent scorer. People yeah. think about Hornacek. It wasn't Hornacek. Like, I, I go back and look at those games. This guy disappeared so many times. Yeah, Hornacek, early 90s Hornacek was was uh, was not walking through that door uh, for the late 90s Jazz. One thing that I, that I do think is really interesting, uh, kind of like big picture wise, when you think about it, and it's really something that stands out to me uh, in terms of uh, looking. We talked about who the Utah Jazz went through uh, in that 98 playoff, right? They go through Hakeem Olajuwon. They go through Tim Duncan and David Robinson. They go through Shaquille O'Neal. And then, so, and there are all these different versions in which one of those three teams makes it through to the finals. Um, Here are the centers that Jordan's Bulls faced in their six finals. Vladi Divac, Kevin Duckworth, Mark West, (laughs) Irvin Johnson, and Frank Burkowski. Greg Ostertag and then Greg Ostertag, Adam Keefe, and Greg Foster split the duties in that last year. But Michael Jordan, not one time, not one time in the NBA Finals had to go through a dominant, a real true dominant center. And look, like we, we talked about Hakeem and the Rockets. Uh, yeah, they were on their last legs, but they had Utah up against the back. You look in the second round uh, against San Antonio, and I know it's young Tim Duncan, but he's already a first-team All-NBA guy. David Robinson is still an All-Star. And by the way, in in Game 1 of that series, Tim Duncan misses a shot at the buzzer that would have won Game 1. Who knows how different that series is? And yeah, like maybe maybe the Lakers just weren't yet ready for the moment because of uh, the experience, a relative lack of experience. But I don't know, maybe they would have beaten the Spurs. It's really interesting just to think about had Utah not been able to get through that juggernaut of a 98 Western Conference, what Michael Jordan and the Bulls would have looked like going up against specifically Hakeem, Shaq, or the David Robinson, Tim Duncan duo. Yeah, when I looked back on this 98 season specifically, I thought to myself, we were literally four games away from seeing Kobe and Michael in the finals. I know. Like, like, Imagine how oh, insane man. that. I know, like Kobe's not Kobe yet, but I, he man, Kobe would have played like like 2001 Kobe. I think it, it was it was it was that year that Kobe was a starter in the All Star game. They had their little thing in New York. It would have been so cool to see the, the torch pass, so to speak, uh, from player to player in, in Kobe and, and Michael. All right, I'm going to throw some bullet points at you before we get out of here of what happened, what else happened that was interesting in that season. Uh, of course, I mentioned the 98 All-Star Game is in Madison Square Garden. No slam dunk contest this year. They go with two ball for the first time. 
Do you remember two ball? Two two ball? I have yeah. no, I have zero recollection of two ball. Two ball was. Is this like the NBA dub? No, the the NBA WNBA thing. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Yeah, two ball is that the NBA WNBA thing. So no slam dunk contests. They, they didn't they didn't have it for player risk of injuries, lack of new dunk tricks, and a lack of big names who were entering the competition. So no 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 slam dunk competition in uh, in 1998. They, they didn't want they didn't want uh, they didn't want Kobe. Uh, Kobe going between the legs or Brent Barry dunking from the foul line? That wasn't doing <laughs> yeah. it for people? It wasn't enough. Kobe had just won it the year before uh, in, uh, at the Gund Arena in Cleveland, if I'm, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that's uh, correct. And that was the year the 50 greatest players were announced as well. Uh, Michael Jordan wins the MVP in that All-Star game, and he also wins league MVP. The Wizards become the Bullets. Or sorry, the Bullets become the Wizards that season. That's the first year where the, uh, the Wizards are in the building. Latrell uh, Sprewell. Chokes out PJ Carlissimo that year. If you don't, do you remember that? I do. Of course, of course, I remember. That. How could I not remember that? Uh, that was like one of the well, one of the biggest. First, that was the first scandal I think I remember in the NBA. Like besides yeah. whatever Rodman was doing, that I think that's the first time everyone was losing their mind over one player. He got suspended for sixty eight games, which at the time was the longest in NBA history for choking out that's, PJ Carlissimo. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I, I think. Well, I think when you know when when what happened uh, with the malice in the palace, eventually, I think that brought back all the memories of of Spreewell and the suspensions and, and whatnot. But at least he was he was attacking an NBA employee at the time. Like, that's <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> yeah, uh, that makes it better, I guess. Sure. <laughs> Michael Jordan passed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar that season uh, for the all-time points leader in the playoffs. In the playoffs that year, also uh, also won his was tenth scoring title, which is just since at the nuts. age of thirty five, played all eighty two games and won a tenth scoring title. That's insane! Insane. Uh, the Spurs, who tanked the season before for Tim Duncan, uh, had the largest or biggest season turnaround in terms of wins at that point thirty six wins, breaking their own record, which they set back in uh, the nineties, uh, nineteen ninety, that to be exact. Uh, which was later broken, of course, by the Celtics, who um, missed out on the top pick. Ends up with KD and, or KG, sorry, and Ray Allen, and you know the rest is history. That's a fun one. That's a fun one to think about. Yeah, uh, the Clyde, Clyde Drexler, which we mentioned quickly, he actually retired that year. Um, he played a bunch of seasons. Was was a you know. One of the top players in the NBA. I think we should do a Clyde, uh, a Clyde Drexler slash Portland Trailblazers 1992 uh, breakdown because that was a team that had Michael on the ropes supposedly or was supposed I, to. I don't. I don't know if they, I, on the ropes is being pretty kind. Yeah, they. I mean, they had a team good enough. They had a team good enough <laughs> I'm to, just, to win. I'm shrugging right back at you right now. <laughs> they had a team good enough to win. He wins a he wins a championship. Uh, steals one in Houston alongside his good pal. Uh, uh, Hakeem Olajuwon, and he actually retires to become the head coach of his alma mater, uh, the Houston University of Houston Cougars, which he uh, wow. yeah, played two uh, championship games with. I don't think they won either. Um, so this is the stat that I wanted to bring to you before uh, about the about the losing and the embarrassment that some of the teams had in, in the regular season. We were talking about how top heavy the NBA was at that point. There was a team that lost 70 games. <laughs> the, the Nuggets had... Oh, they are bad. That's a rough Nuggets team. The Nuggets had tw- a 23-game losing streak. Uh, <laughs> there the was, 11 and 71 Nuggets. Yeah. Don't, don't ever forget. Bad. 
all the Western Conference teams who missed the playoffs actually lost 55 games or more. <laughs> Four of them lost 62 games. That that is a bad Western bottom of the Western Conference. Did care to guess? Care to guess who was the leading scorer on the 97-98 Nuggets? Ooh, ah, that's tough. It, is it? Uh, it's not. It's not. Um, it's not Vashon. Not Vashon Leonard. Jamal Mashburn. It is not Jamal Mashburn. It is one Johnny Newman, Johnny who Newman. averaged a whopping fourteen point seven points per oh game, my goodness. and came off the bench in all but fifteen games. Only started fifteen of seventy four games uh, that year, and he was Denver's leading scorer, just barely more than <laughs> my guy Lafonso Ellis. That's a rough team. Rough That's team. A really rough team. Every everyone's kind of clamoring and 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 hoping that the season comes back just so we can find out that race uh, you know for the eighth seed in the western conference it's quite close right now there's you know there's an argument to be made maybe the pelicans slip in if they get their games played no argument back in 1998 the ninth place sacramento kings finished 27 and 55 14 games behind eighth seed that is embarrassing that's not great that's not great bob the houston rockets were 41 and 41 in eighth, and they pushed the Utah Jazz to five games in a five-game series, and they were 14 games better than the the uh, Sacramento Kings. We finished in ninth. That's that's bad. Uh, the Eastern Conference on the on the other side, uh, the, the teams that had missed the playoffs had at least 30. What, sorry, the teams the Eastern Conference who teams that missed the playoffs had 31 or more wins, except for the Toronto Raptors, who finished 16 and 66. They were bad. I like how we start this podcast off by saying how awesome the league is and just end on just a laundry list of embarrassment. Uh, The awards you wanted to mention, uh, the only one I wanted to mention is uh, Tim Duncan sweeps the Rookie of the Month award. And at this time, there is no Eastern Conference or Western Conference. It's just one player for the month, which I think it should go back to. Sweeps the the, uh, Rookie of the Year award for every single month that season. That was the uh, that was the only one uh, that, that swept any of the awards, and we mentioned Michael wins the MVP, uh, All NBA. Carl Malone's there. Uh, John Stockton does not make it this season, um, and that's it. Coach of the year, uh, Larry Bird. Indiana Tim Pacers. Tim, Dun- Tim Duncan making first team All Rookie is uh, quietly one of the most incredible things uh, in NBA history. Yeah, first team first team All Rookie, first team All NBA is what, is what you, I think what you meant. Right, and yeah. Rookie of the year, yeah. Incredible. Uh, so yeah, that's it. There's the 98 season for the Utah Jazz, a season where they really came close and really should have won the NBA championship. And who knows how that changes the legacy of Carl Malone and also John Stockton and, and to a lesser extent, Jerry Sloan. I think Jerry Sloan maybe doesn't get run out of town the way that Darren Williams kind of chased him out abruptly. He, he deserves a lot more credit for what he did in Utah. I don't think no one talks about Jerry Sloan. Not at all, I, but they, they should. I mean, the, guy, the guy's a legend and titan in the game. I, uh, that's all we have on this episode of NBA Sound System. For Mike Adams, I am Carlin Gay. We will see you next week and maybe deep dive into another great team that just missed the mark. So long, folks. Stay safe out there.